Section 22 of Sir Francis Drake by Julian Corbett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 12. Drake's Armada. Part 1. Drake was at the zenith of his fame. Though the Battle of Gravelines by some strange freak of destiny is hardly known to the bulk of Englishmen, it was at least as momentous as Waterloo or Trafalgar, and the honour belongs to Drake no less rightly than the laurels of Copenhagen or Nelson's. Parma knew it well, and when Drake, leaving the Armada to the mercies of the westerly gales, struggled back through the tempest to face him ere the fine weather returned, he broke up his camp at Dunkirk and abandoned the enterprise. Howard knew it too, and when on his return from the chase he was suddenly summoned to court, he was careful to furnish himself with a testimonial from Drake that he had behaved well to his lieutenant and taken his advice throughout. It was one of Drake's captains who was sent up with the trophies, and it was Drake's name with which Europe rang as the news of the victory spread. The remnants of the Spanish crews who escaped the rocks of the Orkneys and the iron cliffs of Connaught came home to swear anew he was a devil and no man, and Medina Sidonia slunk away to his home to be tormented by urchins who cried under his windows, Drake is coming, Drake is coming. It was only amongst the other captains that there was any disposition to deny him the glory. Frobisher's jealousy was made a focus of opposition by the friends of Spain, and Lord Henry Seymour, furious at having been ordered back to his blockade, begged to be relieved of his command if the Lord Admiral's lieutenant was going to serve in the narrow seas. Faithful and generous as Drake was to his followers, it is certain that in his masterful temperament there was something unbearable to those who were not content to walk in his train while to his friends he was self-reliant, impetuous, and enthusiastic, to those whom his strong personality repelled, he was egotistical, headstrong, and a braggart. Although it was never admitted, everyone knew that his fortune had been founded in plunder, and in spite of his lavishness and his stern destruction of prizes whenever the interests of his country demanded the sacrifice, he was credited with avarice and accused of dragging England into war to fill his pockets. Yet in truth he was greedy of nothing but vengeance and renown, the renown of being hailed as the saviour of his country, the vengeance that was his religion. He was now to give his ambition reign. As August passed and the fate of the Armada was known, scheme after scheme for the prosecution of the campaign was abandoned. The fleet was lying foul and idle in the narrow seas, the officers were quarrelling and splitting into factions, the sick and wounded were dying unpaid and uncared for in the streets of the seaport towns. The admirals did their best. Drake and Hawkins together founded the Chatham Chest for disabled seamen, but the government, under the Queen's irresolution and parsimony, sank into apathy once more, and the country looked to Drake to say the next word. It was with no uncertain voice that he spoke. It was imperative that something should be done before Spain ceased to reel under the blow she had received, yet nothing would the government do. Drake went to Norris. By the middle of September their plans were ripe, and those two knights, whose brotherhood in arms had begun so darkly at the massacre of Rachlin, sent up to the council a proposal 
that is fairly astounding however much we may rub our eyes to see such a thing at a period that we are accustomed to look upon as one of the most glorious in our history the fact is not to be denied these two adventurous spirits in the queen's default offered to form a great war syndicate to prosecute the struggle on which the national existence seemed to hang and what is even stranger their offer was accepted all they asked of the queen or at least all they were granted was a subscription of twenty thousand pounds to the syndicate and the loan of six battleships it was of course understood that the government was in every way to facilitate their operations and they were given power to press men and make requisition of provisions a siege train was also to be furnished out of the royal arsenals and they were to be permitted to take into their pay thirteen veteran foot companies and six hundred horse from the english legion in the low countries norris further received authority to pass into holland in order to negotiate for the co-operation of the dutch a joint expedition of the two great protestant belligerents had been for years the dream of the english soldiers and norris was so far successful that he procured the promise of ten companies and six warships in england the idea was taken up with enthusiasm and in norris's absence drake was able to secure the support of most of the great seaport towns court and commerce came forward freely with money and everything promised a triumphant success the general idea was a revival of the project for the liberation of portugal in don antonio's name but it was no longer on the modest scale of former years through all his life of stress and storm drake had been the prophet of english nationality his mission was to preach and demonstrate its innate strength and now his victory had swelled his idea to its full development it was no filibustering raid he had in his mind but an imperial armada as great as the one he had crushed bent on conquest and fit to show europe that all that spain could do was within the might of england everything was to be ready by february first and all the winter the reawakening war spirit which elizabeth had so long pent up surged round the two commanders all that were warlike and adventurous in the country crowded tumultuously to their standard and drake renewed his relations of the irish wars the brothers of norris were there those chickens of mars who were regarded as the patterns of soldiership there too came the truculent man of monmouth sir roger williams in his gilt morion and great plume of feathers with all the crabbed pedantry and cool valour which seemed to have given to shakespeare the character of captain fluellen and a host more besides whose reputations are long since dead but whom under other names we may see to-day as clearly as when they lived quarrelling fighting and dying through pages of the elizabethan dramatists nor was chivalry behind at its head was the earl of northumberland and essex too had from drake a renewal of his promise of a place if at the last moment he could escape from court the living force of england was loose at last and fed by drake's stupendous notions it began to develop an energy so formidable that as it would seem the government took alarm the queen began to assume more and more control over the preparations and obstacles of all kinds arose there were difficulties about the low country troops and the dutch too grew cold 
elizabeth would not sign the commissions and when she did could not make up her mind to let them pass the seal courtiers tuning to her note began to back out and would not pay their calls while the earl of northumberland was ordered to withdraw both his person and his subscription still the two knights persevered but so straitened were they by the defaulters and so protracted had been the preparations by the conduct of the queen that at last they had to apply to her for further assistance she flew into a passion as a matter of course and tried to induce lord willoughby to take over the command he had succeeded leicester in the low countries but though he would not budge a single inch for all the devils in hell the queen herself had managed to worry the heart out of him and he begged to be excused from the service of so exasperating a mistress perhaps there was something in the melancholy dignity of the broken-hearted soldier's refusal that brought the queen a touch of remorse at any rate in a fortnight the two knights were able to go down to dover to hoist their flags still the forces they were to command were seriously below drake's standard they were already well into march and the long delays had entailed a large expenditure in pay and freight to no purpose moreover the siege train had not been forthcoming and there were also wanting the six dutch men-of-war seven companies of the english veterans four of the dutch and all the cavalry nor had they transports for more than twelve thousand men but drake was not to be beaten he had set his heart on commanding a fleet as great as the invincible armada and once free of the trammels of the court he set about getting what he wanted in his own peculiar way till march sixteenth he waited at dover when there came sailing by a fleet of sixty-five dutch vessels bound for spain under passes from parma on these drake pounced captured them every one and carried them off to plymouth where the chartered cruisers were assembling it was an extraordinary coincidence as he told walsingham with his tongue in his cheek that the dutchmen should have been passing the very day he sailed especially as they happened to be exactly the class of vessels he wanted for transports but be that as it may the effect was electrical and volunteers flocked to plymouth his force soon doubled but as ill luck would have it that only added to the general's troubles for a whole month they lay wind-bound consuming their scanty store of victuals till they had barely a month's provisions left it was not till april sixth that the wind was fair and even then no sooner had they put to sea than they were immediately driven back the case was getting desperate to request a further supply was useless they knew but they had still a strong card to play where entreaty failed a threat might yet succeed so quietly pointing out to the council that it was madness to sail with their existing resources they bluntly announced that unless a reserve of stores were at once made ready to follow them they would have to turn their army of twenty thousand men loose upon the country without a penny to pay them the letter found the queen in a fine tudor rage essex had suddenly disappeared from court sir roger williams had not put back to plymouth since the gale and to her vexation in having to sanction a new requisition was added the conviction that the generals had connived at her truant pet's escape courtiers and messengers came spurring down the great western road and pinnaces were fitted out to find the swiftsure with which sir roger williams had disappeared with an edifying display of zeal for the fugitive's arrest the generals protested their innocence 
but nevertheless on the eighteenth the fleet sailed without a trace having been discovered of essex or williams or the swiftsure drake's dream was realized at last he had got don antonio snugly under his wing and at the head of a fleet of one hundred and eighty sail he was bound for the coast of spain not only is the armament noteworthy as being the most powerful that had ever left the english shores but its organization is of special interest as marking an attempt to introduce order into a naval force on military lines drake's admiration for the disciplines and methods of soldiers no less than the example of the armada was no doubt not without its weight the fleet was divided into five squadrons each of some seventeen ships and fifteen transports and each under a colonel these colonels of squadrons were the two generals-in-chief captain thomas fenner the vice-admiral sir roger williams colonel-general of the foot and sir edward norris general of the artillery at the head of each squadron was one of the queen's battleships and each squadron colonel had on his staff a lieutenant-colonel a corporal of the squadron or aide-de-camp and a captain corresponding to the regimental captain-lieutenant in the sixth queen's ship sailed the rear-admiral captain william fenner unattached as marshal-general of the fleet associated with the two generals there was also a full military staff including an intelligence department under a master of the discoveries with the rank of lieutenant-colonel of the pinnaces when all was over the system was considered to have failed but in truth it never had a fair trial for so foul was the weather and so hurried the whole affair from shortness of supplies that the fleet was never once exercised at sea upon the new system End of section twenty two